Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Curiosity Project. I'm Steve Shepard. Hey, welcome to the first episode of the Curiosity Project. Before I get into the meat of this program, I want to explain why I'm doing this podcast. I was born in West Texas, the son of a mom who liked biology and a dad who was a petroleum geologist. I liked Texas. It was a playground as big as the universe. For me and my friends, it was an endless progression of vacant lots, and each one held surprises. All of us knew where the best lizards were and which fields had the most paint can lids for them to hide under. The lizards were usually too fast for us to catch by hand unless we were really lucky, so we figured out that a large marshmallow fired from a slingshot would momentarily stun them long enough to be grabbed. We all knew which fields had the biggest red ant hills, the most ant lions, the best tumbleweeds. It was our territory, and we knew it better than our own backyards because there were treasures to be found. There were horned lizards, horny toads, no bigger than a June bug, and box turtles. The best ones were either very big or very little, and we all kept terrariums on the back porch to house them. It was a great life, and we spent hours of every summer day in those dusty fields just learning about the world we lived in. Curiosity took root in us, and it never let go. At night, after I'd fed all my critters, I'd sometimes sit on the floor in front of the bookshelf thumbing through a random volume of the World Book or the Encyclopedia Britannica. My favorite was the one that had the clear acetate pages that showed the different systems of the human body all overlaid on top of each other. When I think about that now, it was sort of a paper-based version of Wikipedia. And it came first. Texas was a great place to be a kid, but all things change. And when I was 13, we moved from the dusty flatness of small-town, small-minded West Texas. Our two high schools were Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee, for crying out loud to the cosmopolitan, fast-moving world of Madrid, Spain, where my dad was sent to look for oil during the regime of Generalissimo Franco. I became an expatriate kid living in Madrid. And by the way, not just any expatriate kid. I was an expatriate kid from West Texas, and I learned to be multicultural. The move was a powerful turning point in my life, an adjustment that set the stage for what I was to become and for the profession that would ultimately consume me. I became a writer, a speaker, a storyteller. The curiosity that consumed me as a kid about lizards and turtles and snakes and mosses and mushrooms and crystals morphed into a hunger about the world in general. In the years that followed, I learned multiple languages, I traveled to more than a hundred countries, and I reveled in long conversations with people, conversations where we didn't even oftentimes share a common language. But we both knew how to smile and we both knew how to shrug, and as a result, I became a reader of books and I became a reader of people. Mark Twain once wrote that travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness, and many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. This is so true. One summer, we came back to the States for the first time for home leave. I was with friends on our way to a movie when one of them said to me, let's cross the street. We don't want to be on this side. I asked him why, and he pointed to a group of Hispanic kids that were approaching us. They had just left the movie that we were on our way to see, and they were talking about how good it was, something I understood thanks to my now nearly perfect Spanish. And that's when it struck me. I had something my friends didn't have. I had a superpower. 
I had cultural x-ray vision. I stopped and chatted with the kids, asked them about the movie, all in Spanish, of course, while my friends and the Spanish-speaking kids looked on in what I can only describe as awe. A gringo that speaks Spanish. Amazing. Well, going back to Mr. Twain's observation, I realized that day that my travels and my experiences had removed prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness, another way of saying, by the way, not curious, from who I was. And what I realized in a blinding flash of teenage awareness was that the irrational fear of that which is different disappears when different evolves from threatening to interesting. When something that was formerly feared becomes interesting, the interest that results sparks curiosity. And curiosity leads to awareness and understanding. Awareness and understanding lead to the willingness to discover whatever it is that makes us more similar than different, and that just leads to people getting along. I'm old enough now to have two very young granddaughters. Over the course of the last three years, I've come to realize that the best way to learn to be curious is to put a three-year-old on your shoulders and go for a walk in the woods. They'll teach you everything you need to know. They ask unfiltered, legitimate questions. They aren't afraid to be wrong or to look stupid for asking so many dumb questions. Dumb because the adult doesn't know the answer. What I believe, and this, by the way, is why I decided to do this podcast, is that way too many people get into the habit of mentally filtering out whatever they don't understand. These people hear and see what they want to hear and see. They learn to ignore everything else, to suppress natural curiosity, and in the process, they submit themselves to the tyranny of ignorance. Have you ever wondered whether blind people are racially prejudiced? They can't see the world around them. So are they free of the inclination to dislike someone because of their skin color? I find that to be kind of a curious question, don't you? I believe deeply that curiosity, the simple desire to know a little bit more about, well, everything, is being ground away by people who attack science simply because they don't understand it or are too lazy to try. The sad thing is that these people can infect children with the same intellectual apathy, and as far as I'm concerned, that borders on criminal. This podcast is about keeping curiosity alive and about teaching people the joy and the reward of learning just for the sake of learning. So every episode is going to be about something that I learn in my quest to discover really cool stuff. I'm going to interview some very interesting people. I'm going to have some very interesting conversations. And basically, I'm going to follow whatever rabbit trail presents itself, and I'll take you along for the ride. So I guess that was the meat of the episode, learning to be curious because it makes us better people. By simply asking questions like, really? And are you sure about that? And now, what if we did this instead? We expand the way we think. We broaden our possibility horizon. We become more tolerant of ideas that may not agree with our own, but that enrich what we believe nonetheless. So let me give you a sense of the kinds of things that we're going to talk about in this podcast. On a plane today, while flying from Vancouver to Los Angeles, I finally finished the book, The Disappearing Spoon. Now, I know when I tell you this that your estimation of me as chronically weird is going to go up a few notches, but believe me, this book is full of really great, really interesting stories. It's about the history of the periodic table of the elements that we all suffered through in chemistry class. Remember that? Actually, it's not about the periodic table. It's about the remarkable and wonderfully weird people who developed it. Here are a few of the things I learned while reading the book. Remember when we were all taught that the speed of light is a constant? and cannot be altered in any way, 186,284 miles per second. Well, guess what? That's not true. It turns out that sodium metal 
can slow light down to a barely crawling 38 miles per second. Now that's still moving pretty fast, but compared to 186,000 miles a second. But here, wait a minute, it gets better. Praseodymium, element number 59 in the periodic table, can actually capture light, hold on to it, and then send it ricocheting off in a random direction. That's right. Praseodymium stops light cold. Scientists in the lab have created praseodymium crystals that have held light stock still for up to a full minute. Now, I have no idea what the implications of that are, but somebody does, and I suspect that it's jaw-droppingly important. But don't think this podcast is going to be purely about science, because it isn't. Just a few weeks ago, I had a conversation with someone who was, okay, let's see, how do I say this gently, closed-minded about pretty much everything. This guy made Rush Limbaugh look liberal. So at some point in the conversation, I stopped him and I said, tell me what you believe. He stopped talking and then he responded, well, what do you mean? I told you I'm a Republican. That's what I believe. I said, no, that's the name of the club you belong to. I want to know what you believe. At this point, I could tell he was feeling trapped. So I tried to make it easier for him. I gave him some options. What do you believe about how education can be made better? How do you think we should balance the need for a growing economy and for social programs? What are three things you would do to fix the healthcare system? Why is offshoring of jobs such a bad thing? What should our stand be on immigration and the fact that this is a country of immigrants? Well, he couldn't address any of those. In fact, I'm pretty sure I saw little wisps of smoke come out of his ears. Now, please understand, I'm not attacking the Republicans. As far as I'm concerned, both major parties are so irretrievably broken that it would take a demolition crew to fix them. My concern is that this guy, like so many other people I've met, hadn't given any thought whatsoever to what he personally believes, about anything, apparently. Yet if he did, he might be surprised by what he learned. So we're going to spend some time talking about that in a future podcast. After all, our future's at stake. I think that's worth a conversation. Here's another one for you. Did you know that if you bite wintergreen lifesavers in the dark, they create flashes of light in your mouth? That's right. They create sparks. I know why they do it, because I looked it up on Wikipedia but I'm not going to tell you. You've got a computer. You go look it up. Okay, now get this. There's a place in the West African country of Gabon called Oklo. In pre-Cambrian times, that's between four and a half and half a billion years ago, it hosted the only known naturally occurring nuclear fission reactor on Earth. Here's the story. There are shallow ponds that have formed on top of very rich deposits of uranium. Blue-green algae grows in the water. The uranium under the water contains a lot of U-235, which is highly radioactive. So here's what happens. The algae releases a lot of oxygen into the water. As a result, the water becomes acidic, and it leaches the U-235 out of the uranium ore. The algae filters the water and concentrates the U-235. The water slows down the neutrons enough to allow them to be captured by neighboring nuclei, creating critical mass. The fission of the U-235 creates heat which evaporates the water, and the reaction stops. The pool cools off, water trickles back in, and the process starts again, going critical every 150 minutes. Now today, they're mining the uranium in Oklo, but for a very long time, that site was a naturally occurring nuclear reactor. Go figure. Here's another one, although this one didn't come from the disappearing spoon. I learned this by going to Wikipedia and clicking on the random article link, something I recommend that everybody do every day, like a one-a-day vitamin. This story is about vampire bats. Everybody knows or thinks they know that 
Vampire bats suck blood from their victims. Well, it turns out that isn't true. Vampire bats, which have a body not a whole lot bigger than a mouse, can spot warm spots like blood vessels close to the skin's surface using a form of infrared vision. They can see heat. So what they do is they make their way to the spot on the victim's body by flying or crawling or walking. And once they arrive at the feeding station, they use their razor-sharp teeth. And by the way, it's the edges of their teeth that they use. That's the razor-sharp part. To shave a little tiny area on the skin of the victim, after which they make a tiny little puncture in the skin and then lick up the blood that seeps from the wound. They don't suck it, they lick it. Now here's the best part. Vampire bats typically feed for about 20 minutes, swallowing as much as an ounce of their host's blood. But 20 minutes is a long time for a tiny puncture wound to bleed because it would usually clot within five minutes or so. So how do they keep the blood flowing? Well, it's simple. Their saliva contains a powerful anticoagulant. Now, I'm sure you probably already figured that out. But let me tell you what it's called. It's called Draculin. That's right, Draculin. Is that cool or what? But think about this. An ounce of blood is heavy, especially for a flying animal that weighs about an ounce and a half. That ounce of blood weighs half what the bat weighs, which would be like me sitting down and eating a 90-pound meal and walking away from the experience feeling pretty good. So to overcome this problem, the vampire bat's digestive system has evolved to hyper-accelerate the processing of the blood it eats. In less than a minute, the bat's stomach walls absorb all the blood plasma and send it on its way to the kidneys to be excreted. Within two minutes of swallowing, the bat pees out all the heavy liquids, retaining the nourishing, lightweight blood cells. What a world. This is a podcast about curiosity because curiosity is the natural enemy of ignorance, and ignorance is the natural enemy of understanding. Well, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, so curiosity and understanding go hand in glove. Curiosity leads to understanding, understanding leads to tolerance, and tolerance, of course, leads to peace. For The Curiosity Project, I'm Steve Shepard. I hope you'll join me and my guests each week in my quixotic quest to save the magic of knowledge by somehow turning curiosity into our sixth sense. See you in the next episode. 